lights to show you. Welcome back. We're the Sirens Who Scream, and you're listening to episode 54, which is part two of our conversation on H.P. Lovecraft with special guest Bob Ryer. If you missed part one, do us and yourself a favor and go back and have a listen on sirensofscream.com. Otherwise, here's a little tune to get you back in the mood. Jackie brought up a good point. We were chatting about this earlier that I think is related to what you're saying, Bob. And that's the idea that there's a a generational gap that's very strong with H.P. Lovecraft and that I think many people, many young people probably haven't read a lot of his work, but enjoy lots and lots of stuff that is sourced or influenced by his work. Yeah. In fact, if you guys wouldn't mind, I'd actually like to expand on that and kind of jump into some of my own experiences with H.P. Lovecraft. This actually occurred to the three of us when we were talking about this topic initially. We realized that none of us had really read very much Lovecraft or been exposed to Lovecraft directly. 
but speak of things like relay and Cthulhu and all these various Lovecraft terms, we know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> That's great. Mm-hmm. Because we've all been exposed to Lovecraftian ideas in one way or another. And there seems to be this kind of generational gap in terms of influence versus reference. Perfectly so, put. Perfectly yeah, it, put. Yeah. It seems like where it comes into the sort of balance is that media in more modern, I want to say like the past couple of decades, is more kind of geared toward stuff that is very heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, as you mentioned in your introduction. I mean, you can't really throw a stone without hitting something that it has been <laughs> <laughs> influenced by Lovecraft. He is one of the biggest influences in horror ever, like ever, ever. But I mean, at some point during Lovecraft's works, of course, the references toward his characters would have to evolve in order to be fresh and new and bring in a new audience there. So those kind of evolve with it. My own personal experience here is mostly within video games. Really? Okay. Awesome. I mean, I'm, there are... I'm not surprised by this. Yeah, I play a lot of video games. I was actually... <laughs> I was looking at my Steam page yesterday and there's like thousands of hours in video games and started questioning what I'm doing with my life. But then... And that's a whole other story. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so there are very direct video games that center around Lovecraftian stories, such as Cthulhu saves the world. I mean, obviously that is a... See, that strikes me as out of character. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, he doesn't really save the world. He, he, he has, himself, he has yeah. his options. But honestly, best video games of the past few years, especially in the world of horror, have been so heavily influenced by Lovecraft. It is it's kind of painful. Amnesia is one that I'm realizing comes up on our show so freaking much that <laughs> it, it's... Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of shocking how often it comes up on this show. I'd like to give a little bit of background or a little bit of context Please. to each of these. Amnesia is set in 1839 Russia. This young man from London awakens in a dark and empty castle with little to no memory about himself or his past. And in this story, he's basically wandering around this dilapidated castle, piecing together this puzzle about who he is and why he's there. It and is, uh, let me just jump in. There's a famous Lovecraft story called the outsider yeah that's read that i won't say anything else Read that one. Along his way, he's finding these notes that he's written to himself, which inform him of why he's deliberately erased his own memory and that he's being hunted by a shadow. And one point that is so very directly Lovecraftian is this alleged shadow that is chasing him. It's actually a horrifying monster. And if you try to look at this monster, or if you uh, sit in the dark for too long, you start losing sanity. There you go. Yep. Points. <laughs> the whole point of this is to get to an inner sanctum and it really goes off the rails from there but i i don't want to give any spoilers to anybody who will play this because this is truly one of the best horror games i think that is available so this is something that i will talk about it every time it is relevant to our topic and i don't i don't really care what melissa and sierra think because <laughs> they're gonna hear me talk about it more and more but <laughs> per- personal horror in the sense of, of your narrator here. And again, since Lovecraft, more often than not, his narrators all first person. And that sort of growing, gnawing fear and unease, that in and of itself, that's a Lovecraftian mood you're describing. And I, I think that outsider story I mentioned, you're going to absolutely love. Yeah. Another yeah. one is Bloodborne. All these that are on my personal list are ones that I've played firsthand. And Bloodborne is easily one of the most difficult video games that I've ever played. And I curse as much playing this as I do while playing <laughs> Hotline Miami. But it's a third person dungeon crawler set in an alternate dimensional Victorian era where legendary monsters and folklore are actually real and a Lovecraftian horror kind of lurks under the surface there uh, that the player has to unveil. The combat is so difficult and dying is just its horribly punishing. Even the monsters themselves were, you know, when you go into a boss fight, they will whip out all of these various tentacles and all of these. I mean, it's quite terrifying and very beautiful in its own way. But the attention to detail in all of these sets is gorgeous to the point that some of the fan art that comes out of that game is incredible. Another one is Dishonored. Dishonored is a first-person stealth game where there's a conspiracy to overthrow an empress, the Empress of Dunwall, in a fictional Victorian-era nation. 
which causes a Lovecraftian spirit from an alternate dimension to make contact with the one man, Oops. yourself, Oops. who can set things straight. So you're given power to seek the revenge upon the conspirators, but you start getting the sinking feeling that the Lovecraftian spirit who provided those abilities is up to something behind the scenes. This is another kind of putting together the puzzle, sort of moving the pieces into place on a chessboard kind of thing to see the bigger picture kind of game which gives it that feel as well and i'm actually going to skip over a couple of these and go straight to the park which is a first person walking simulator set in an abandoned amusement park melissa you mentioned this before didn't you yeah but i haven't played it yet i was about to say it's been on my wish list for a very long time so is that the one where the sun goes missing yeah, yeah. exactly Ooh. Yeah, I watched a Let's Play the amusement that park. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when the game opens, the park is actually open and vibrant in the daytime, and then you are this single mother with her son, and the son turns around and runs back into the park. Suddenly, it's dark, and the park is abandoned and empty and falling apart, and it's very strange. It is a complete walking simulator. You don't solve any puzzles. There's no combat. Your entire experience is to walk through this very creepy story. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, that's an experience. <laughs> Of that actually makes yeah. me more likely to play it now that you told yeah. me that. <laughs> but as you're walking through this and searching for your lost son, you dive deeper into this Lovecraftian horror, which lurks right beneath the ground. And it speaks to people causing horrible atrocities to each other. So it's this very interesting story that unfolds in front of you. So you're kind of walking right into it to find your son. So very personal and very creepy. I, like yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you think you're going to play the uh, the new Call of Cthulhu game that's coming out in October? It's possible. I haven't really given it much thought, but yeah, maybe. It's supposed to be a like a role-playing survival game. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a follow-up to Dishonored, the one with the Lovecraftian spirit that kind of controls the, the chessboard of that Victorian era setting there. I do want to play that, the follow-up there. I have that. Mm-hmm. Dishonored 2. Have you played it? I played it for like 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty bad at it. (laughs) I'm pretty terrible at it. I heard a lot of people talk about how it's not easy to jump into if you didn't play the first one. Yeah. The play mechanics are kind of complex. Yeah. Yeah. I had a really hard time with it. I expected it to be kind of like an Assassin's Creed thing where, you know, I'd pick up on the sneakiness pretty quickly, but got really frustrated with it. I kept getting caught and found no matter what I did. And I was like, I just gave up. (laughs) Yeah. It takes some getting used to for sure. Yeah. Another thing I did want to throw out there, Bob, you actually reminded me of this earlier when you spoke about that Baby's First Mythos book. There's a couple of children's books out there centered around Cthulhu. One is C is for Cthulhu, which looks adorable, but I haven't read that one. The other one is Sweet Dreams Cthulhu, which I don't know how they got my email, but for some reason they (laughs) sent me the digital copy of this book and I read it and it is the cutest freaking thing I have ever seen. <laughs> so that is absolutely wonderful and i i actually have been wanting to get it for melissa for matt mm. <laughs> i'm sure he'd love it yeah he loves creepy kids books and i think his, his favorite book is about like a pair of underwear that come to life so the creepy underwear yeah the creepy underwear <laughs> <laughs> i've actually been meaning to say it on here but after we had that conversation in that episode sierra got drunk and sent me that because i was so excited it was like the best surprise in my mail <laughs> Creepy underwear. I guess I'll jump into a couple of mine that I threw in. Some of these I didn't realize were Lovecraftian, but I've got a lot of comics on my list, not surprisingly. One called A Study in Emerald, which I just talked about on Talking Comics. That's a trade paperback from Neil Gaiman and Raphael Albuquerque that my co-host would probably enjoy. If you guys don't remember, Raphael Albuquerque is the artist that did American Vampire. Oh, okay. It's an easy read trade paperback. It's Cthulhu and Sherlock mashup. Maybe we need to do it for our next comics episode. Yeah, that'd be fun. Maybe. I've got a bigger list for you guys for that. All right. And then Hellboy, of course, Bob mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. One of the ultimate best horror comic series ever, I think, is Lock and Key, which is very Lovecraftian influenced as well. Isn't isn't the first issue is Welcome to Lovecraft Country? Yes. Yes. And then there's Fatal. Absolutely. The first volume particularly. Yeah. And then there's a great series called Jenny Finn, which is also from from Mike Mignola, the guy that did Hellboy. Ooh, I don't know that one. Okay, you, you caught me. 
I think I talked about that one on Talking Comics once a while back. It's set in like Victorian age London and it's about this yes. strange little girl who shows up and starts kind of turning people into weird squid creatures. As you do. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. And then movies that I could think of. The Thing was an obvious one. Evil Dead is also an obvious oh, one yes. in my head. And Reanimator, the of classic course. Reanimator. Now, here's a weird reanimator, a couple of weird reanimators. When he wrote those, they were serialized in a humor magazine called Homebrew. The, the George Anthony Hutane, who was in charge of the magazine, said to Lovecraft, do your worst. Write the most outrageous, over-the-top thing. It's a humor magazine. Do what you want. It was meant to be a black mm -hmm. comedy. So for those people who looked at reanimated the movie and got bent out of shape as Lovecraft historians. Oh, it's not what he wanted. You don't know him. <laughs> it was meant to be goofy fun and always was. He also only got paid $5 a, a story. <laughs> sitting on my wall, as I'm sitting recording, I'm looking at my bookcase that is filled with Lovecraftian stuff. I had a cabinet maker make me an old-fashioned two-door glass bookcase to hold all the old stuff. It's got some Algonquin round table stuff too, but lots of Lovecraft. But to the, it's, on top of it is a statue of Cthulhu and a plush Cthulhu and a Funko Cthulhu, and someone crocheted me a Cthulhu. I've got way too many Cthulhu <laughs> in my living room. You've got I, a house full I'm, of Cthulhu. I'm in big trouble. That. But at that icon convention, Jeffrey Coombs, who played Herbert West, was going to be there. And certainly wanted to go get his autograph. And the way icon worked, if someone was a regular guest, you didn't have to pay for anything to be autographed. But you could buy a picture and, and pay for it, the, the way those things mm -hmm. were. Even though I didn't play the role-playing game of Call of Cthulhu, they had put out the Miskatonic University Graduates Kit, which I had to buy, which had bumper stickers, library passes, window decals, you name it, course descriptions, but also had in it a small pad of Miskatonic University stationery with a little drawing of the college and Richard Upton Pickman Hall, Pickman's model is one of Lovecraft's uh, famous stories. <laughs> so I went, okay, I've got a plan. So I walk up to Jeffrey Coombs' table and his assistant is selling pictures. I went, I want to buy that picture where the guy with no head is going to conk him on the head <laughs> at, at his desk, but I don't want him to sign the picture. And she, why wouldn't you want him to sign the picture if you're paying for it? Because I wanted to sign this piece of stationery that says Miskatonic University on it. <laughs> so I walk up to his table, and she's still laughing in the background. Oh, he's going to love this. And I said, yeah, I'm getting the picture. What I'm going to do is going to be mounted in a frame. And underneath it is your signature under where it says Miskatonic University. So he signed it. Jeffrey Combs, Herbert West. And so it's still mounted on my wall with this in this lovely frame. But as I walked away from him, he said, can I have some of that paper? Because I'm going to sell the crap out of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be on my table at every convention from here on. Be my guest. That's awesome. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, look, Reanimator, there were, there were Lovecraft booms over the years. August Derleth and Donald Wandry in 1939, after Lovecraft passed in 37, decided they should give his work the dignity of hardcover. And so there, there was like a brief boom, including some Armed Forces editions. There was even a radio play as early as 1945 of the Dunwich Horror starring Ronald Coleman from Lost Horizon, no less. And and then it passed for a while and it came back in, in the 60s. And then again with Reanimator. And, and that movie by Stuart Gordon really set a whole Lovecraft thing in, into play. We'll, we'll, we'll get into some of that, I'm sure, as we go. So... I'm sorry. I, I interrupted, Melissa. Go ahead. I, no, you're okay, Bob. That's why you're here. Okay. <laughs> Sierra, I want you to share some of your Lovecraft materials because you actually, I, I love that we all three of us came up with like totally different lists of. I know we have like totally different corners yeah. of media. I think similar to why Jackie has so many video games. I'm kind of the same way, but I don't play a lot of video games. I play more tabletop board games and things. And for some reason that's just like the deepest well for game developers mm -hmm. they seem they can like build a billion different stories and whether it's uh like straight up role playing like dungeons and dragons kind of style or if it's like a board game kind of thing like there's a lot so some of the ones that i've played are arkham horror and eldridge horror arkham horror is a beefy game it's kind of a, a beast it takes yes. like all day to play i own that not, one like... and i can't find anyone to play it with me we can... oh my god it takes <laughs> so long we can have a night <laughs> all the four of us will do it uh-huh yeah, yeah it's it's yeah. really fun but you have to like 
set a whole day aside for yes. it. And then if you want like the light version of it, Eldritch Horror is a good one. And then I've played one called Mythos Tales. It's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes detective kind of game where you have a map with all of these different places and then there's a book that has like kind of a choose your own adventure story style story where you like go and you talk to different characters and like find different clues and you kind of go off on little side quests and things and you're basically following in this like Lovecraft kind of world where people are doing sacrifices and trying to summon people and like being in cults and things. Natural is what you do. Yeah, that one's, a, that one's a fun one. It's a little clunky. It helped be that one of our friends who owned the game kind of acted as like a, a game master for it and led us through it so that like the story kind of made sense. Another one, uh, there's a version of Pandemic, which is a co-op board game where everybody is working together to find cures for diseases before they take out the, like the entire world. Mm-hmm. I love Pandemic. It's really fun. And there's legacy versions too, if you really like it. And they're fun too. But there's a Cthulhu version of Pandemic, where instead of trying to save the world from diseases, you're trying to save the world from Cthulhu's and and the Elder Gods and everything. What's going to happen? Sorry, you lose. That's how that's a lot. Yeah, it's, I mean, Pandemic (laughs) itself is really hard to win. And I think this one is like, even worse. (laughs) It's a little unforgiving, but all of the art and style of it is really fun. And then the last one that I've played is Mountains of Madness based on the story where you're a team and you're climbing and trying to find artifacts and things like that. It's really fun. And a lot of those games appear on a list that I linked in here that we could probably put in the show notes of top 10 Cthulhu board games. And they range from short little games and long whole day games and campaign level things and all ages and all of that. There's a lot. There's like, it's a very deep well. <laughs> yeah. Hey, did you ever play Steve Jackson did this? It was Cthulhu Dice. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that one's dice. fun. But yeah, that's, it's again, it's about madness points. I have that game. Yeah. I forgot I had that game. <laughs> See? Yeah, that's a fun, like, short little kind of in-between games game. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're sitting around, you're waiting to get the other thing assembled, and you're having an extra drink or whatever. And yeah, we'll, we'll do some Cthulhu Dice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Everyone's first experience with Lovecraft, let's let's go around the room. What was it? First time you saw something that you could identify as HP Lovecraft. I don't know. Game, comic, movie. Oh, Bob, you, I hate when you ask me these questions that require a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. Cthulhu was cereal. It was little like octopi and milk. I really don't know what my first is, but I have a fun anecdote for you. Will that work? Please, absolutely. Okay. My husband and I, we met while planning a zombie walk years ago. Aww. It turns out we had actually... It was time. <laughs> well, <laughs> we had actually been planning that same zombie walk for about three years before we met. Like, there were, there were pictures of us together from years before we had actually met. And it turns out we had both worked on the same haunted house for like five years before we had ever met. And I specifically helped them build the Cthulhu in the haunted house (laughs) that his friends, it was actually his friends that were building. And I came over to help build the Cthulhu for his haunted house. And we just had never met. Yeah. (laughs) That that counts. That counts extra bonus points. You built the Cthulhu. Okay, Melissa, you're up. You figured it out by now, I'm sure. I, no, I haven't. I don't yeah. know. I honestly don't know. I, I don't know because that would require me to both remember something that I discovered a long time ago and also remember okay. when I figured out <laughs> what H.P. Lovecraft is and what his influence is. Okay. That's all right. Uh, Sierra, and then I'll go and we'll maybe I'll figure it out. Later. The one that came to mind, and I... I only remember it because it's called Lovecraft's Woods. It's one of R.L. Stein's haunting hours. Oh. I remember watching this episode where these kids are walking through the woods, and I don't even remember what happens, but I just remember that they're called Lovecraft Woods. It's probably not good. Like I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like they're like in a time loop, and like they, they like kind of go mad. A little bit. As you do, Lovecraft, like, Lovecraft, most of his narrators, it's a bad conceit, I suppose, but it is so perfect in a way. And his narrators would continue to write until they disappeared at the end of a story. 
<laughs> it's the thing. It's outside the window, and it's cut. Ah! <laughs> it, it's that Monty Python. You wouldn't bother to carve arg. But <laughs> in Lovecraft stories, they did sort of that. For me, I I don't remember the exact mechanism anymore. But it is 1970. It was either because my ninth grade English teacher, Mr. Sullivan, the greatest teacher I ever had, had decided on a Friday. He was. We were the smart class, which just meant we were more trouble than everybody else. The dumb class was after lunch, and in between, he drank. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! This, this one Friday, we were on the second floor. He was tired of teaching the same crap every year. He opened the window and shoved his books out into the parking lot. Oh, wow. I said, when you guys come back Monday, we'll have something different. So I, I really think it was his influence. And there was a list of, and we read Orwell and Bradbury. And we, we went to plays and movies in the city. It was lots of science fiction. Huxley, we read Brave New World and, and Flowers for Algernon. And on the list, I'm pretty sure this is really how it worked with Lovecraft. And I was in a supermarket with my dad, the Grand Union supermarket on New York Avenue in Huntington, where I grew up. And I still have them because they're here in front of me on the table. It's two paperbacks. They were 95 cents a piece from Lancer Books in these psychedelic day glow colors, the Dunwich Horror <laughs> and the Color Out of Space. And I was hooked from then on. I had to read everything. I bought the Arkham House editions in two or three different versions, tried to find things, and then discovered there had been movies before. For most people, I think it's Reanimator that sets them into the Lovecraft mode in the 80s, at least of a certain age. And, and that's a great film by Stuart Gordon. And it, it does replicate that great thing that, that Lovecraft had there, that he wanted that humor and over-the-topness of that. What Stuart Gordon, who's a huge Lovecraftian, wanted to do next was his famous story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, about this town in Massachusetts where they had had an economic downturn and turned away from Christianity to worshipping the esoteric order of Dagon, which eventually became, as I think it was Gamer Detromo pointed out in the documentary I mentioned before, Lovecraft must have had a fear of breeding of any kind and inbreeding <laughs> even more so. <laughs> Considering the apparently he and his wife, their idea of intimacy was sort of the Spock to Pring, you touch fingers idea. And Innsmouth is the story of this village where people would be born normal, but because of the weird things that were going on as the years would go on, they'd acquire the Innsmouth look and become these froggy fish looking people. And the studio wanted no part of that. So he did From Beyond, which is fun. Of course, Lovecraft's short story disappears four minutes into the pre-credit sequence and it's something else. And the shame of it is they had these Bernie Wrightson storyboards and production drawings. And they all kind of went away for years. But in 2001, he made a movie called Dagon. That is absolutely awesome and is probably the best representation of the Lovecraftian mood in a film ever. So check check out Dagon if you can. And I should while I'm while I'm ranting. The HP Lovecraft Historical Society, the two movies they made are right up there with it. They did the Call of Cthulhu as if it was made well the short story was written. So it's made as a silent movie with, with special effects, because you got to remember in 1925, Willis O'Brien, who made King Kong, made The Lost World with stop-motion animation dinosaurs. He invented stop-motion animation. So when you get to the island and they open the dread tomb on Relier, Cthulhu shows up, and he comes after them and walks around, and it, it's amazing. And they also did The Whisperer in Darkness, which is made to look like a universal horror movie of the 30s. So both highly recommended. Back before there was home video, you had to sit up late at night or look at the TV guide and see what was on and discovered, wow, the first person to make a Lovecraft movie is Roger Corman. When he was making those Vincent Price movies like Pit and the Pendulum and so on, he wanted to break out of that loop and made, it's actually the case of Charles Dexter War, but it's called The Haunted Palace because American International didn't think anybody knew who H.P. Lovecraft was in 1963. 
and they may have been right. And it's Vincent Price in a Lovecraft movie. What more perfect protagonist slash antagonist, because the story involves multiple identities. Mm -hmm. So check out that. Corman then, a couple of years later, did the Dunwich Horror as a movie, which sadly falls apart because they didn't have the money to do the actual creature at the end. Does anyone know the story of the Dunwich Horror? Should I I spoil a story from 1930? No. (laughs) No? Okay. I won't won't then. But it is... The conceit of it has been borrowed by other people. There's a wizard who decides to traffic in the dark arts and makes a deal with those from beyond that involves his daughter and children who are not quite... Oh, I actually listened to that on Spotify last week. There are actually a lot of H.P. Lovecraft audiobooks on Spotify right now streaming for free. Nice. People should look those up. The H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did a Dunwich Horror version of that. It's funny, when they did that in 1945 with Ronald Coleman, everyone pronounces that now as Dunwich. He pronounces it as Dunwich in the way we pronounce Greenwich Village. Wait a minute. So I actually wrote to the Historical Society went, how are you, you going to say that? Dunwich. That's how everyone says it. Who cares what Ronald Coleman says? He's dead. <laughs> okay, I get it. He, Lovecraft is really creepy as a radio or audiobook because your, your imagination pulls into play so many worse things that he could possibly show on the screen. It's one of the reasons the color out of space, John Carpenter has been wanting to make that for years. I think he pitched it to NBC as a television miniseries. And they pass because they have no imagination. In that story, a meteor falls on a farm and it cracks open into this color that no one's ever seen on the planet Earth before. And it's really great. And the scientists come investigate and then they leave. And the poor family left behind, whatever was in that meteor, it's definitely the blob. It is definitely, everyone saw Creepshow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. Okay. In that the plants change, the trees start to move on their own when there's no wind, the bugs get big, the animals get gray, the fruit cracks and falls apart, the people get all bizarre. How do you really show that? How do you show a color that's never existed before? There is a, a German film of the Colorado space that is quite good, and they try to get to it by staying mostly black and white. But that, that's a goodie. You mentioned the thing before, certainly. Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness is a wonderful film that it's in a little crafty in vain. I'm going to throw in every... Alien is definitely yeah. Lovecraftian. I can't believe we didn't think of that. I love In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, I love that. Cutter saying. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that Stephen King early on wrote very much in the Lovecraftian vein. The, the initial draft, in some way, because it's a much shorter version of Salem's Lot, is Jerusalem's Lot, which is definitely Lovecraftian. But it's certainly in the short story, which has a different title, but in the movie. And you should only watch the black and white version that's on the double disc special edition, The Mist, with Thomas Jane. Pure Lovecraft. I think there's uh, prob- probably a lot of Stephen King. Yes. Well, as you said, there's a lot of influence that just because you can't throw a rock without hitting it, <laughs> it, it, it is certainly around and out there. Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. that's, that's, it's all that weird stuff before, but we get to the end, it's, it's the Elder Gods and they're going to take over. Yes, yeah. it's Lovecraft. Yeah. I so, would like to save a little bit of time before we get too long here to do some trivia with you guys. Oh. Okay. If you want to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's hope that Bob doesn't know all of the answers. Oh, oh. <laughs> I I can be a, a really nice guest. <laughs> okay, you ready? Yes. If you found yourself at the Mountains of Madness, where would you be? Peru? South Africa? Tibet? Or Antarctica? I think it's Antarctica. I thought it was Peru. Okay. you are correct antarctica oh yeah clearly was way off (laughs) (laughs) peru is close it's you know it's in south america i was thinking peru too just because i think of peru as like you know foggy mountains yes okay yes they are i find one of these that i don't need to have a hard time pronouncing (laughs) (laughs) 
That's that's tough with Lovecraft. But here's the thing: they he always said that all those weird words with the apostrophes and whatever were, were English language representation of words that weren't meant to be spoken by human vocal cords. <laughs> so as Caitlin Kiernan points out, there really is no correct or incorrect way to pronounce them. Go for it. <laughs> so okay. You're good to go. Lovecraft's early work, such as The Doom That Came to Sarnath and The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, were heavily influenced by which writer? Charles Dickens, William Morris, Lord Dunsany, or George MacDonald? I'm going to go with Charles Dickens. I have no idea. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Okay. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, well, what? Yeah, I did, I did mention it, actually. Lord oh. Dunsany. Lord Dunsany? You got it right. This author's irritation with H.P. Lovecraft made him create a corrected version of a Lovecraft story and publish it in Dr. Brody's report. Was that Philip K. Dick, Julio Cortazar, George Louis Borges, or Edgar Allan Poe? I think PKD. I'm going to go with PKD as well. It's I think it's Borges. Yes, Bob's right. Gorgeous. Damn it, Bob. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Lovecraft wrote his first drafts, and I, I will say this to you ladies, to honor you guys and, and HP, my notes for tonight were all written in longhand the way he did. <laughs> to be no fair, your notes, your, your notes are always written in longhand. No, not always. Not always. Not for not for a big event like this one, but there are, there are papers strewn everywhere. <laughs> Mr. Borges was a jerk. You gals have never seen someone take notes until you've sat next to Bob at a Comic Con and watched him take notes <laughs> and <laughs> handwritten notes in his notebook. Oh, dang! An H.P. Lovecraft classic horror tale: Rats in the Trees, The Rats in the Walls, The Rats of Montsoris, Rats on the Roof. Shooting rats at the Bibb County dump <laughs> or tunnel rats? <laughs> not, not that next to last one. I'm gonna go with rats in, the, rats in the walls. That's what I was going to say. That's right. You are correct. Hey. It, it is a hideous, hideous tale of very deep family history where a fella inherits a house and you shouldn't look in the basement. <laughs> I love basement stories. Oh, this has lots of basements. Which story of Edgar Allan Poe's is referenced in Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness? <laughs> the mystery... What? Do, do you want to guess without the, without the answers? No. Okay. <laughs> I do not. Oh, come on, Jackie! <laughs> I prefer no. multiple questions. Multiple answers. The mystery of Marie Rogette, the gold bug... The narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, or the Mask of the Red Death. Oh, I think Bug. The gold. I'm gonna bug. go with the Mask of the Red Death. Gordon it's Pym. actually the narrative of Arthur. Where did that go? Arthur Gordon oh, Pym of yeah. Nantucket. Oh. Yeah, it, it's made it like direct reference made into the story, including a, a little bit of business where in Poe's story there's a sound that is made, pickalili. And that's actually in the mountains of Atlas. All right. Keep going. These are fun. I'm going to. I just lost my spot for a second. Oh. <laughs> and some of these are repeated, so I'm trying not to do the same one. Oh, here we go. Which now mainstream scientific theory was novel and controversial at the time Lovecraft incorporated it into his novel at the Mountains of Madness? The Big Bang Theory and the Expanding Universe? DNA and the molecular transmission of genetic information, quantum physics and wave particle duality, or continental drift and tectonic plates. I'm going to say continental drift. Man, I feel like if I, oh, what, what time period is this? <laughs> hmm, maybe DNA. Jackie was right. Continental drift, tectonic plates. Yeah, yeah the line is. Uh, uh, the continents moved and great work, Jackie. Hey. Oh, this one's fun. Who is the narrator of H.P. Lovecraft's chilling horror story, The Temple? A German U-boat captain? A Swedish fashion model? 
A Japanese samurai or a Texas cowboy? <laughs> Texas cowboy. <laughs> samurai. Narrating a Lovecraft story. <laughs> Japanese samurai, no, I don't think. It's a German U boat captain. Well, that's boring. Yeah, <laughs> no. it definitely should be a samurai. Well, I, I, and we can rewrite it as a samurai. <laughs> it could definitely work. I, but I'm thinking fashion model would be more fun. I could just hear, like, I know she's not Swedish, she's German, but I just imagine, like, Heidi Klum reading yeah. Lovecraft in my Or your Schiffer or whatever. <laughs> okay. The funny thing, he, he, for the most part, because of who he was, he mostly had narrators who were him. There is a very late story called The Thing on the Doorstep that is certainly not feminist, but there is a weird thread to it. It's about a woman, Azenith Waite, who may or may well, she's realized, written in 1935, that she cannot get as far along as she would like being a female witch as opposed to a male wizard. Marries a fella... Twitches bodies, there's murder and dead bodies coming back to life and all sorts of, yeah. Awesome. It's a nasty bit of business with a <laughs> shocking finale. The thing on the doorstep. Speaking of nasty business, here's the last question. And it's going to oh. get gross. Because Bob mentioned earlier how the rats in the walls is a horrible story. So in Lovecraft's classic horror tale, The Rats in the Walls, what unspeakable crime does the gentleman narrator end up committing? You ready for these? Oh yes. Necrophilia? Dealing drugs? Which does not fit into this category of horrible things. <laughs> Cannibalism? Or child pornography? Necrophilia, totally. Cannibalism. Oops. Cannibalism. Yeah. Yay, cannibalism. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it if you're going to read the story. What he discovers in his sub-basement is beyond belief. Well, we will wrap it up there. We would give you more time if we didn't all need to go to bed at some point. Sierra might probably hasn't even eaten dinner because she's in a different time zone over there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I forget that all the time that Sierra runs home from work and then doesn't have a chance to eat before she gets on the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> but, you know, this is a topic that could go on and on and on forever. And I don't know, maybe we'll have to do a and maybe we'll do an episode two. Yeah. yeah, just the movies or something. Yeah, we'll save we'll save one for 2019. So I'll throw one tidbit on before I go then. Okay. In 1966, there was a television pilot it didn't sell. It's called Dark Intruder by a fellow named Jack Laird, who would go on to produce Rod Serling's Night Gallery, where they would do some Lovecraft stories. So he was very into it. The television pilot set in the 1890s in San Francisco with a occult detective running around solving crimes. And then the pilot, it's a very Lovecraftian thing. And the star is Leslie Nielsen from Airplane and Police Squad and all those sort of things. That's saying. Bob, you're full of. Full of goodies. Full of something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Bob, and for educating us and sharing all the goodies that roll around in that head of yours. It's always a pleasure. We have such a great conversation. It goes into so many interesting places that we don't anticipate at the start. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled and always honored. Oh. <laughs> We love having you on here, Bob. We do. So this has been the Sirens of Scream, everybody. Another episode under the belt. Thanks for joining us and uh, helping us do spooky things. And we're always pleased to explore horror and all the creepy corners of nastiness with everyone. And this one in particular felt super fun because I don't think we dive so far into like gothic horror as often as maybe we should. To keep us going, please take a second if you have a chance to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to be listening to us. If you want to come chat with us or you want us to chat with you, hit us up at Sirens 
at sirensofscream.com. We love to go on other shows. We love to share other shows here and support the podcast community. You can find all of our show notes, past episodes, and links to various things that we talk about at sirensofscream.com. And you can hit us up and talk to us on our social media links. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, around all the things everywhere. We love to hear you guys tell us what you think about the show or if we forgot to mention something important, you know, share your own horror projects with us, all that kind of stuff. We love to hear from all of you. Bob, I know the answer to this, but tell everybody else, where can people find you? Well, I am not one of those social media guys so <laughs> it's pretty simple yeah I'm bob ryer at talkingcomicbooks.com you'll always get an email back with a salutation and an ending and a whole like a, a real email i i can speak for experience that bob is a is a wonderfully proficient and classical letter writer <laughs> uh, i'm hp lovecraft at a certain level huh <laughs> <laughs> jackie where can people find you I am Jackie the Robot on Twitter and Instagram. Sierra. At Sierra Hawk on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. <laughs> and you can find me at Lissa Punch on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find me on the Talking Comics podcast. And real quick, prepare your ears because our next episode is our third, right? Our third 31 Days of Horror. Whoa, I love those. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> So many great recommendations. I know. Gotta get ready. I'm sitting looking at right in my pile of stuff because I just picked up for five bucks the Babadook. Ooh, nice. Well, I've seen it because you recommend it, and now I own it so I can watch it for this Halloween. Awesome. Yeah, so, you know, nobody should go into October without a huge list of horror to watch. Massive list. Yeah, and once we all plan our Halloween costumes and get on that... <laughs> oh, I figured we'll out what that. I think I want to be, guys. What is Did it? You? What is it? I couldn't... Okay, so a couple nights ago, I couldn't fall asleep, so I was thinking of what I should be for Halloween. A pillow? And what? <laughs> that would be fun. A pillow? <laughs> that would be good. I, I was also, because I couldn't sleep, I was watching videos of people making masks, like, on face-off and, like, those, like monster kind of masks and i want to try to make one of a like a plague doctor Ooh, but yes. as a bird skull yeah i feel like that would be right up jackie's alley oh my god yes and if that if like if that crafting fails i want to be baba yaga Ooh, Ooh. Yes. what was i watching oh man you just put something in my head and it's just out of reach and i cannot grab it and i hate when that happens something i was watching recently that was really funny and somebody kept calling someone else baba yaga and it just stuck in my head anyway oh it was deadpool 2 was it or oh it was ant-man yes right (laughs) ant-man 2 yes (laughs) (laughs) ant-man He's Baba Yaga! <laughs> anyway, guys, stay spooky, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye!